Chapter Seven, Part One of A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter Seven, The Diamond Mines Again. When Sarah entered the holly-hung schoolroom in the afternoon, she did so as the head of a sort of procession. Miss Minchin, in her grandest silk dress, led her by the hand. A man-servant followed, carrying the box containing the last doll. A housemaid carried a second box, and Becky brought up the rear, carrying a third, and wearing a clean apron and a new cap. Sarah would much have preferred to enter in the usual way, but Miss Minchin had sent for her, and after an interview in her private sitting-room, had expressed her wishes. "'This is not an ordinary occasion,' she said. "'I do not desire that it should be treated as one.' So Sarah was led grandly in, and felt shy when, on her entry, the big girls stared at her and touched each other's elbows, and the little ones began to squirm joyously in their seats. "'Silence, young ladies,' said Miss Minchin, at the murmur which arose. "'James, place the box on the table and remove the lid. Emma, put yours upon a chair. "'Becky!' suddenly and severely. Becky had quite forgotten herself in her excitement, and was grinning at Lottie, who was wriggling with rapturous expectation. She almost dropped her box, the disapproving voice so startled her, and her frightened bobbing curtsy of apology was so funny that Lavinia and Jessie tittered. "'It is not your place to look at the young ladies,' said Miss Minchin. "'You forget yourself. Put your box down.' Becky obeyed with alarmed haste, and hastily backed toward the door. "'You may leave us,' Miss Minchin announced to the servants with a wave of her hand. Becky stepped aside respectfully to allow the superior servants to pass out first. She could not help casting a longing glance at the box on the table. Something made of blue satin was peeping from between the folds of tissue paper. "'If you please, Miss Minchin,' said Sarah suddenly, "'mayn't Becky stay?' It was a bold thing to do. Miss Minchin was betrayed into something like a slight jump. Then she put her eyeglass up and gazed at her show-pupil disturbedly. "'Becky!' she exclaimed. "'My dearest Sarah!' Sarah advanced a step toward her. "'I want her, because I know she will like to see the presents,' she explained. "'She is a little girl, too, you know.' Miss Minchin was scandalized. She glanced from one figure to the other. "'My dear Sarah,' she said, "'Becky is the scullery-maid. Scullery-maids, uh, are not little girls.' It really had not occurred to her to think of them in that light. Scullery-maids were machines who carried coal-scuttles and made fires. "'But Becky is,' said Sarah, "'and I know that she would enjoy herself.' "'Please let her stay, because it is my birthday.' Miss Minchin replied with much dignity, "'As you ask it as a birthday favour, she may stay. Rebecca, thank Miss Sarah for her great kindness.' Becky had been backing into the corner, twisting the hem of her apron in delighted suspense. She came forward, bobbing curtsies, but between Sarah's eyes and her own there passed a gleam of friendly understanding, while her words tumbled over each other. "'Oh, if you please, miss, I'm that grateful, miss. I did want to see the doll, miss, that I did. Thank you, miss. And thank you, ma'am,' turning and making an alarmed bob to Miss Minchin, "'for letting me take the liberty.' Miss Minchin waved her hand again. This time it was in the direction of the corner near the door. "'Go and stand there,' she commanded. "'Not too near the young ladies.' Becky went to her place, grinning. She did not care where she was sent, so that she might have the luck of being inside the room, instead of being downstairs in the scullery, while these delights were going on. She did not even mind when Miss Minchin cleared her throat ominously and spoke again. "'Now, young ladies, I have a few words to say to you,' she announced. "'She's going to make a speech,' whispered one of the girls. "'I wish it was over.' Sarah felt rather uncomfortable. As this was her party, it was probable that the speech was about her. 
It is not agreeable to stand in a schoolroom and have a speech made about you. You are aware, young ladies, the speech began, for it was a speech, that dear Sarah is eleven years old to-day. Dear Sarah, murmured Lavinia. Several of you here have also been eleven years old, but Sarah's birthdays are rather different from other little girls' birthdays. When she is older she will be heiress to a large fortune, which it will be her duty to spend in a meritorious manner. The diamond mines, giggled Jessie in a whisper. Sarah did not hear her. But as she stood with her green-grey eyes fixed steadily on Miss Minchin, she felt herself growing rather hot. When Miss Minchin talked about money, she felt somehow that she always hated her, and of course it was disrespectful to hate grown-up people. When her dear papa, Captain Crewe, brought her from India and gave her into my care, the speech proceeded, he said to me in a jesting way, I am afraid she will be very rich, Miss Minchin. My reply was, her education at my seminary, Captain Crewe, shall be such as will adorn the largest fortune. Sarah has become my most accomplished pupil. Her French and her dancing are a credit to the seminary. Her manners, which have caused you to call her Princess Sarah, are perfect. Her amiability she exhibits by giving you this afternoon's party. I hope you appreciate her generosity. I wish you to express your appreciation of it by saying aloud altogether, Thank you, Sarah. The entire schoolroom rose to its feet, as it had done the morning Sarah remembered so well. "'Thank you, Sarah,' it said, and it must be confessed that Lottie jumped up and down. Sarah looked rather shy for a moment. She made a curtsy, and it was a very nice one. "'Thank you,' she said, "'for coming to my party.' "'Very pretty indeed, Sarah,' approved Miss Minchin. "'That is what a real princess does when the populace applauds her.' "'Lavinia,' scathingly, "'the sound you just made was extremely like a snort.' If you are jealous of your fellow-pupil, I beg you will express your feelings in some more ladylike manner. Now I will leave you to enjoy yourselves." The instant she had swept out of the room, the spell her presence always had upon them was broken. The door had scarcely closed before every seat was empty. The little girls jumped or tumbled out of theirs, the older ones wasted no time in deserting theirs. There was a rush toward the boxes. Sarah had bent over one of them with a delighted face. "'These are books, I know,' she said. The little children broke into a rueful murmur, and Ermengarde looked aghast. "'Does your papa send you books for a birthday present?' she exclaimed. "'Why, he's as bad as mine! Don't open them, Sarah.' "'I like them,' Sarah laughed, but she turned to the biggest box. When she took out the last doll, it was so magnificent that the children uttered delighted groans of joy, and actually drew back to gaze at it in breathless rapture. "'She's almost as big as Lottie!' someone gasped. Lottie clapped her hands and danced about, giggling. "'She's dressed for the theatre," said Lavinia. "'Her cloak is lined with ermine.' "'Oh!' cried Ermengarde, darting forward. "'She has an opera-glass in her hand, a blue and gold one.' "'Here is her trunk,' said Sarah. "'Let us open it and look at her things.' She sat down upon the floor and turned the key. The children crowded clamouring around her, as she lifted tray after tray and revealed their contents. Never had the schoolroom been in such an uproar. There were lace collars and silk stockings and handkerchiefs. There was a jewel-case containing a necklace and a tiara which looked quite as if they were made of real diamonds. There was a long sealskin and muff. There were ball-dresses and walking-dresses and visiting-dresses. There were hats and tea-gowns and fans. Even Lavinia and Jessie forgot that they were too elderly to care for dolls, and uttered exclamations of delight and caught up things to look at them. Suppose. Sarah said, as she stood by the table, putting a large black velvet hat on the impassively smiling owner of all these splendours. Suppose she understands human talk, and feels proud of being admired. 
"'You are always supposing things,' said Lavinia, and her air was very superior. "'I know I am,' answered Sarah, undisturbedly. "'I like it. There is nothing so nice as supposing. It's almost like being a fairy. If you suppose anything hard enough, it seems as if it were real.' "'It's all very well to suppose things if you have everything,' said Lavinia. "'Could you suppose and pretend if you were a beggar and lived in a garret?' Sarah stopped arranging the last doll's ostrich plumes, and looked thoughtful. "'I believe I could,' she said. "'If one was a beggar, one would have to suppose and pretend all the time. But it mightn't be easy.' She often thought afterwards how strange it was that just as she had finished saying this, just at that very moment, Miss Amelia came into the room. "'Sarah,' she said, "'your papa's solicitor, Mr. Barrow, has called to see Miss Minchin, and as she must talk to him alone, and the refreshments are laid in her parlour, you had all better come and have your feast now, so that my sister can have her interview here in the schoolroom.' Refreshments were not likely to be disdained at any hour, and many pairs of eyes gleamed. Miss Amelia arranged the procession into decorum, and then, with Sarah at her side heading it, she led it away, leaving the last doll sitting upon a chair with the glories of her wardrobe scattered about her dresses and coats hung upon chair-backs, piles of lace-frilled petticoats lying upon their seats. Becky, who was not expected to partake of refreshments, had the indiscretion to linger a moment to look at these beauties. It really was an indiscretion. "'Go back to your work, Becky,' Miss Amelia had said. But she had stopped to pick up reverently first a muff, and then a coat, and while she stood looking at them adoringly, she heard Miss Minchin upon the threshold, and being smitten with terror at the thought of being accused of taking liberties, she rashly darted under the table which hid her by its tablecloth. Miss Minchin came into the room, accompanied by a sharp-featured, dry little gentleman, who looked rather disturbed. Miss Minchin herself also looked rather disturbed, it must be admitted, and she gazed at the dry little gentleman with an irritated and puzzled expression. She sat down with stiff dignity, and waved him to a chair. "'Pray be seated, Mr. Barrow,' she said. Mr. Barrow did not sit down at once. His attention seemed attracted by the last doll and the things which surrounded her. He settled his eyeglasses and looked at them in nervous disapproval. The last doll herself did not seem to mind this in the least. She merely sat upright and returned his gaze indifferently. "'A hundred pounds,' Mr. Barrow remarked succinctly, "'all expensive material and made at a Parisian modiste's. He spent money lavishly enough, that young man.' Miss Minchin felt offended. This seemed to be a disparagement of her best patron, and was a liberty. Even solicitors had no right to take liberties. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Barrow,' she said stiffly. "'I do not understand.' "'Birthday presents,' said Mr. Barrow, in the same critical manner, "'to a child eleven years old. Mad extravagance, I call it.' Miss Minchin drew herself up still more rigidly. "'Captain Crewe is a man of fortune,' she said. "'The diamond mines alone—' Mr. Barrow wheeled round upon her. "'Diamond mines,' he broke out. "'There are none. Never were.' Miss Minchin actually got up from her chair. "'What?' she cried. "'What do you mean?' "'At any rate,' answered Mr. Barrow, quite snappishly, "'it would have been much better if there never had been any.' "'Any diamond mines?' ejaculated Miss Minchin, catching at the back of a chair, and feeling as if a splendid dream was fading away from her. "'Diamond mines spell ruin oftener than they spell wealth,' said Mr. Barrow. When a man is in the hands of a very dear friend, and is not a businessman himself, he had better steer clear of the dear friend's diamond mines, or gold mines, or any other kind of mines dear friends want his money to put into. The late Captain Crewe—here Miss Minchin stopped him with a gasp. "'The late Captain Crewe!' she cried out. "'The late! You don't mean to tell me that Captain Crewe is—' "'He's dead, ma'am,' Mr. Barrow answered with jerky brusqueness. "'Died of jungle fever and business troubles combined.' 
The jungle fever might not have killed him if he had not been driven mad by the business troubles, and the business troubles might not have put an end to him if the jungle fever had not assisted. Captain Crewe is dead. Miss Minchin dropped into her chair again. The words he had spoken filled her with alarm. What were his business troubles? she said. What were they? Diamond mines, answered Mr. Barrow, and dear friends, and ruin. Miss Minchin lost her breath. Ruin! she gasped out. Lost every penny. That young man had too much money. The dear friend was mad on the subject of the diamond mind. He put all his own money into it, and all Captain Crewe's. Then the dear friend ran away. Captain Crewe was already stricken with fever when the news came. The shock was too much for him. He died delirious, raving about his little girl, and didn't leave a penny. Now Miss Minchin understood, and never had she received such a blow in her life. Her show-pupil, her show-patron, swept away from the select seminary at one blow. She felt as if she had been outraged and robbed, and that Captain Crewe and Sarah and Mr. Barrow were equally to blame. "'Do you mean to tell me,' she cried out, "'that he left nothing? That Sarah will have no fortune? That the child is a beggar? That she is left on my hands a little pauper instead of an heiress?' Mr. Barrow was a shrewd businessman, and felt it as well to make his own freedom from responsibility quite clear without any delay. "'She is certainly left a beggar,' he replied. "'And she is certainly left on your hands, ma'am, as she hasn't a relation in the world that we know of.' Miss Minchin started forward. She looked as if she was going to open the door and rush out of the room to stop the festivities going on joyfully and rather noisily that moment over the refreshments. "'It is monstrous,' she said. "'She is sitting in my sitting-room at this moment, dressed in silk gauze and lace petticoats, giving a party at my expense.' "'She is giving it at your expense, madam, if she's giving it.' said Mr. Barrow calmly. Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible for anything. There never was a cleaner sweep made of a man's fortune. Captain Crewe died without paying our last bill, and it was a big one. Miss Minchin turned back from the door in increased indignation. This was worse than any one could have dreamed of its being. "'That is what has happened to me,' she cried. "'I was always so sure of his payments that I went to all sorts of ridiculous expenses for the child. I paid the bills for that ridiculous doll and her ridiculous fantastic wardrobe. The child was to have anything she wanted. She has a carriage and a pony and a maid, and I've paid for all of them since the last cheque came." Mr. Barrow evidently did not intend to remain to listen to the story of Miss Minchin's grievances, after he had made the position of his firm clear and related the mere dry facts. He did not feel any particular sympathy for irate keepers of boarding-schools. "'You had better not pay for anything more, ma'am,' he remarked, "'unless you want to make presents to the young lady. No one will remember you. She hasn't a brass farthing to call her own." "'But what am I to do?' demanded Miss Minchin, as if she felt it entirely his duty to make the matter right. "'What am I to do?' "'There isn't anything to do,' said Mr. Barrow, folding up his eyeglasses and slipping them into his pocket. "'Captain Crewe is dead. The child is left a pauper. Nobody is responsible for her but you.' "'I am not responsible for her, and I refuse to be made responsible.' Miss Minchin became quite white with rage. Mr. Barrow turned to go. "'I have nothing to do with that, madam,' he said, uninterestedly. "'Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible. Very sorry the thing has happened, of course.' "'If you think she is to be foisted off on me, you are greatly mistaken,' Miss Minchin gasped. "'I have been robbed and cheated. I will turn her into the street.' If she had not been so furious, she would have been too discreet to say quite so much. She saw herself burdened with an extravagantly brought-up child whom she had always resented, and she lost all self-control. Mr. Barrow undisturbedly moved toward the door. "'I wouldn't do that, madam,' he commented. "'It wouldn't look well. Unpleasant story to get about in connection with the establishment. Pupil bundled out penniless and without friends.' 
He was a clever businessman, and he knew what he was saying. He also knew that Miss Minchin was a businesswoman, and would be shrewd enough to see the truth. She could not afford to do a thing which would make people speak of her as cruel and hard-hearted. "'Better keep her and make use of her,' he added. "'She's a clever child, I believe. You can get a good deal out of her as she grows older.' "'I will get a good deal out of her before she grows older,' exclaimed Miss Minchin. "'I am sure you will, ma'am,' said Mr. Barrow, with a little sinister smile. "'I am sure you will. Good morning.' End of chapter 7, part 1